So that's Genesis 39, and we're starting at verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us to me came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is God's word. Why bother obeying God? Why should you bother doing what Jesus says? Now, one reason that I hear a number of people give is that, look, life goes better when you follow the maker's instructions. Marriage, work, friendships, finance, even holidays. The whole of life works better when you follow what God has said. Because what he says in his word agrees with the way he's made his world. It's just common sense. And that is the truth. But it's not the whole truth. It is also true that if you obey God, it can make your life a whole lot harder. If you live in Iraq at the moment and you follow the God of the Bible, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your choices pay a ridiculously unpayable fine, 
die or run with just the clothes on your back. That doesn't sound like it makes your life go a whole lot better. For us, even here in London, it might cost you promotions at work. I know some here know that. It may well cost you popularity with friends because of things you won't go along with. It may set you at odds with your family. It may be the cause of great conflict and tension in your life if you obey God. So why be faithful to God? Well, the message of Genesis 39, in one sense, is be faithful to God because God is faithful to you. It is a chapter all about faithfulness, and the human narrative presents the faithfulness of Joseph, but actually that is not the main narrative of the chapter. The main focus of this chapter is not our faithfulness, human faithfulness, Joseph's faithfulness. The main focus of this chapter, the theological narrative, the key narrative, if you like, is God's faithfulness. That is the reason, the motivation, the drive, the ground for the response of Joseph's faithfulness to it. Uh, And throughout this story of Jacob and his sons, we see this lesson of God's faithfulness again and again. We saw it um, even when Joseph had been sold into slavery. It looked like God's promises were working backwards, that things were were further away from fulfillment at the end of chapter 37 than they were at the start. And yet, we see God was faithful. God was at work. We see that God was faithful even in spite of and even through the, uh, the squalid mess that Judah was involved in last week in chapter 38. God was faithful. God was at work. And now, verse 39, we see that it is worth being faithful to this God because of his faithfulness. So verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So we jump back into the main narrative, if you like. Um, we, we stepped out of the focus on Joseph last week to, to look at Judah. But the, the writer of Genesis, Moses, wants us to have that episode ringing in our ears. Because he wants us to see Joseph's faithfulness in prison, in slavery, in contrast to his brother Judah's filth and wickedness in freedom back in Canaan. And the first thing we'll see is that God remembers and God blesses. Verse 2 to 6. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, the first thing that should strike us as you look down at those verses is is the repeated word. You'll see it because it's all in caps, which makes it stand out, which is the Lord, which translates uh, Yahweh. As we said before, it's the personal name of God. 
It's the, the name that God reveals to his people in the Old Testament. And it's the, the name that's particularly tied to the promises God has made. It's Yahweh, the Lord, in capitals in our Bible. It, what it should translate, trigger in our minds, is the one who made promises to Abraham and kept them. The one who made promises to Isaac and kept them. The one who made promises to Jacob and kept them. That is who the Lord is. And five times we read, the Lord did this or did that. In other words, Joseph has not been forgotten. Joseph has not been abandoned, and Joseph is not too far away now in Egypt for God to look after him. God, the promise-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is also with Joseph. So, how does life go when faithful God is watching over you? Well, looking down here pretty well, it seems. Uh, Joseph prospers. Firstly, he's not slogging it out in the fields. He's serving in Pharaoh's household. A great privilege. Verse 3, even pagan Potiphar can see that God is with Joseph. Now that is interesting. How on earth would Potiphar know that God is with Joseph? Potiphar might just be able to see uh, that Joseph is a very successful manager. That Joseph seems to have a, a knack with investments. That Joseph is good at looking after and running the other slaves and servants. But he'd only know that it's because of the Lord If Joseph was open with Potiphar, and if Joseph gave the glory to God and said, I worship him, and he is the cause of my success. And the Lord's blessing leads to his master's favour. Joseph finds himself as Potiphar's attendant. So basically, in Downton Abbey terms, obviously I don't wash it, but I know you do, so um, let me translate. In Downton Abbey terms, he is somewhere between, he's like a, a combination of baits, and um, the butler joined together in one person. That's how he relates to uh, Potiphar's earl, if you like. So he's his personal attendant, and he manages the whole household. And everything goes well with Joseph looking after it. Bumper crops in the fields, no sickness in the house, all the investments are going up. And life in Potiphar's whole world is just wonderful, basically, when Joseph's around. So Potiphar is happy as you like. And the word everything is repeated again and again in these few verses, as well as the word Lord, to stress the abundance of God's goodness and blessing in Joseph's life. So six or seven years have probably now passed uh, between when Joseph's rich robe was ripped off his back and he was sold as a slave. And he may not be in freedom, but the truth is life looks pretty good for him. It looks as good as it can look for a slave. But that is not the end of the chapter. If it was, we might preach as sadly many churches do these days, even in London, that if you trust in God, if you obey God, then you will know riches. You will know blessing in your relationships. You will know prosperity in every area of your life. But that is not the end of the chapter. The last half of verse 6 strikes a slightly odd note. Now Joseph was well made and handsome. That is the only time in all scripture we read anything like that. So Joseph was an ancient Brad Pitt. (laughs) How on earth is that even vaguely relevant? Well we'll see now as the man obeys and suffers. And after a while His master's wife took notice of Joseph 
and said, come to bed with me. And in this little section, we we need to have our ears tuned. There are echoes going through it. There are echoes of Genesis 3 and the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. There are echoes of Genesis 3.15 and the promise that there will be this eternal struggle between the serpent and the seed of Eve, who will bear the serpent crusher. And there are echoes of Genesis 38 and Judah dealing with temptation with Tamar. Now, let me just say, this chapter is not written primarily to teach us how do you resist temptation. It is not here as a manual for resisting temptation. But, before we get on to the main purpose of the chapter, it does contain some phenomenally useful lessons. It sort of illustrates an awful lot of what the Bible has to say when it does teach specifically about temptation. The truth is, the Old Testament characters are rarely there to, to give us an example to follow. That's not the way they function in scripture. But occasionally they do illustrate uh, the right way to walk. And so we do learn some very interesting lessons. Or we see illustrated some of what the Bible has to say about temptation. And the four things we see stressed here are he's ready for it. He sees sin for what it is. He flees rather than fights. And he values obedience more than comfort. We'll, we'll repeat those as we go through them. It's interesting though, look at the verse 6. Again, Joseph was well built and handsome. Now, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. And many of us will know that what we long for with our eyes, we eventually have to have in our hands. It's just the way it works with temptation. It never stops with a look. And Potiphar's wife commands Joseph to come to bed with her. Now, be in no doubt, this is a serious temptation. Joseph is a slave. He may never have the opportunity to marry. He has no freedom over his own body at all. And here is a wealthy, powerful woman who has the ability to make his life go very nicely indeed. And she's inviting him to be her personal man. How does Joseph respond? Verse 8, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So note first, he's ready. He's ready. In the original, her approach to him is just two words. His reply is two long, thought-out sentences. He doesn't come up with that on the spur of the moment, I don't think. But he's noticed the flirtatious looks, the slightly inappropriate touches. He has already realized that there is danger coming. And he has thought and he has prayed and he has worked out what he's going to do and what he is going to say. His reasoning could so easily have gone the other way. Potiphar does not concern himself with anything in the house, so basically we can do what we like. He's not withheld anything from me, so I don't see why he'd withhold you. But Joseph has thought about it carefully. All the games we play in our minds, uh, trying to justify things, 
we've already decided basically we're going to do it. We're just trying to work out a way that makes us feel less guilty when we actually get on with doing what we've decided we'll do. But Joseph brings it out into the cold light of day. And he is ready. He's thought about it. He's analysed it. And when the moment comes, he's able to call it what it is. And he's able to stand strong. So you'd be an idiot if you went into a very important exam without having done practice questions, having worked out what sort of things am I likely to be asked so that I'm ready and able to tackle them. Well, I don't know what temptations you or you or you or you will face tomorrow. But I bet you do. Have you thought about how to handle the temptations that come up again and again and again? in your place of work, in your commute to work, when you're at home on your own, when you're out with your friends? Have you thought and prayed so that you're ready? Firstly, he's ready. Secondly, he sees sin for what it is. Verse 9. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. In other words, he calls a spade a spade. See, the first step down the road to disobedience for many of us is the redefinitions that we make. Dishonesty, talking up the business. It's not lustful flirtation exactly, it's just a bit of office banter. I mean... It's not gossip. I genuinely really care, and it's you know it's important that we you know know what's going on. It's it's not being tight-fisted. It's I'm being financially prudent. But Joseph doesn't play the game, and you see that. Look how he refers to Mrs. Potiphar. You're not any woman. You are his wife, and he calls sleeping with her not um, this affair this kind offer, it's a wicked thing. It's wrong. He recognizes it as a crime against his master, but also a sin against God. There's no mucking around with what, how he describes it. He brings it into the, into the light and shows how ugly and awful it is and says, I am not doing that. And sins like adultery thrive on darkness They thrive on the usually unspoken agreement that we will not call this what it is. That certain things will never be talked about. Certain words will never be used. Otherwise, it's very hard to sin away happily. Joseph, however, throws open the curtains and brings in the light. You have a husband. This is wicked. It's a sin against God. I'm not doing it. And the truth is that you and I will only resist sin when we call it what it is. It's so much harder to resist something which I see as, well, not very healthy, perhaps not ideal, maybe not living in God's best way for me, rather than a wicked act, a rebellion against God, an offence in his sight. Don't redefine, call it what it is. But that is not the end of it, is it? Verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even 
to be with her. Round two soon follows, and then rounds three, rounds four, and rounds five. She keeps up her seductions day after day after day after day. And how many of us know the experience of resisting boldly and feeling that wonderful sense of of God's pleasure as we turn away from sin only two days later to fall in the same place? But he won't take any chances. He won't even be with her. See, the third lesson is, because temptation is strong, don't fight it, run away. Cowardice is a virtue at this point. Run away. He knows. We all have our off days. We all have those weaker moments. And he doesn't want to take any chances. He may feel strong when he gives his speech to Mrs. Potiphar, but he knows that there will come other days when he's feeling very different. So he stays away. Uh, One of my favourite TV shows used to be Steve Irwin. Do you remember the crazy... Australian crocodile hunter. It always it always begin with him whispering to to the camera, "This little fella, he's perfectly docile unless you provoke him, and that's what I'm going to do." And then he shoves a stick at a crocodile or grabs a grabs a taipan snake by the tail. I mean, he was extraordinarily skillful the way he could control and you know pick up poisonous spiders, swim with great white sharks. It, incredible, crazy, amazing things. And then. In September 2006, swimming with some uh, stingrays and one of them got spooked and swung its spike and went into his heart and he was dead. Freak accident. Hardly anybody has ever been killed by a stingray. Total freak accident. But here's the thing. If you spend all day, every day handling lethal animals... It only requires one tiny misjudgment. It only requires one animal to behave just a tiny bit differently from the way you were expecting, or or one mild misjudgment, and you don't get a scrape or a bruise. You make your wife a widow. See, don't play with sin. Don't play with temptation. Don't indulge it. Many of us kid ourselves, I'm fine. There's been no problem. It's been like this for weeks, months, and none of the things you said would happen have happened. It's all perfectly, I'm in control. Neither of us are going to, you know, make a real mess of this. It's perfectly safe for us. But it only requires one week evening, one glass of wine more than you'd planned, one weak moment, and suddenly... It's all over. Don't be a fool. Get out of the room. Be ready for temptation. Call it what it is. Flee rather than fight. And finally, finally, remarkably with Joseph, we see here is a man who values obedience to God more than comfort in life. And that's something we need to resolve to do if we're going to stand firm. Look at verse 11 to 12. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. The longer it goes, the more determined she basically is to have him. And finally the day comes when there is nobody else around. And she corners him and grabs him 
And he wriggles out the way, but she's got hold of his cloak and he doesn't care, he just runs. He's not an idiot. He knows what she's going to do, what she might do. But the boy who wouldn't take off the coat that was the emblem of his father's favoritism has become the man who's willing to drop his cloak to get away from sin. His brother Judah voluntarily left behind a load of his personal possessions so he could sleep with his own daughter-in-law. Joseph is willing to drop his coat so that he can escape a temptation that he hasn't sought out. It is easy, to be honest, to obey God when it makes things go well. You know, it's one thing resisting temptation and knowing that, well, if I were to do that, it would ruin my marriage. If I were to do this, I'd lose my job. It's quite another thing to resist temptation when things are going to go worse if I obey God here. But he's already explained where he stands. Look at verse 9. Sin is sin and God is God. And he will not indulge the former to disobey the latter. He will not do that. It doesn't matter how much better life might go with him as Mrs. Potiphar's secret lover. He's not going to do it. Thousands of years later, Jesus put it this way in Mark 9, 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world... And yet forfeit his soul. There is nothing she can offer him. There is nothing she can threaten him with that will make him do this. And having risen so far, he now loses everything. Why? Because he honours God. Verse 13. When she saw he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. She plays her part very well. Your slave that you brought has done this. You sorted out Potiphar. And we read that Potiphar burned with anger in verse 19. (laughs) Pointedly, though, we're not told who he burned with anger against. The fact that he doesn't have Joseph killed for attempted rape of his wife makes you wonder whether Potiphar doesn't have a fairly good idea of what happened. But nonetheless, Joseph is flung into prison. And this, I guess, is the ultimate test for all those of us who would call ourselves Christians, for those of us who would say we follow Jesus. Will I still obey him when it costs me? When it makes me less popular? When it means promotions doors are going to be closed. When it means I lose something I love or miss out on something I desperately want. Do I really think obedience to God is worth more than anything? Is there, is there any price that I'm not willing to pay to obey my God?
Finally, the God who remembers and blesses. Verse 24. Sorry, 21. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in all he did. And that sounds like a twisted joke. What do you mean God was with him? God was with him so he gets falsely accused and flung in prison. Well, if that's what happens when God is with you, frankly, I'll take my chances on my own. I mean, that's, that just seems ridiculous. But God is with him. And again, we find the repeated Lord, Lord, Lord. Just as in Potiphar's house, so in the royal jail, God blesses Joseph. And everything Joseph does, well, again, it goes well. And just like Potiphar, the jailer notices and entrusts responsibility to young Joseph. So God's blessing may not be what Joseph wants, and it may not come when Joseph wants it or where Joseph wants it. But God is with him to preserve him, and God is with him to faithfully bless him. And the matching two sections at the start and at the end, they're there to tell us the main point of this passage is that we need to learn God is with his people. It may not look like that always, immediately, on the surface. When we take the snapshot of life rather than look at the full movie, it may not look like it, but God is with his people. The message of this passage is not just be faithful like Joseph. The message of this passage is God is faithful. So you can trust him and obey him. God still has a plan. God is fulfilling his promises. So trust him. Obey him. Joseph must have thought and wondered if he was even vaguely normal as he lay in prison. What on earth was the point of all this? Was it really worth this to be true to God? Now we have the advantage. Ten minutes time we can have read to the end of the story. We know it's worth it. We know what God will achieve through Joseph's faithful obedience. But Joseph does not know that as he languishes in prison. It's amazing what God does. Firstly, the humbling changes Joseph. The brat becomes a real man. He is humble, gracious, obedient, and courageous. He's now ready for the authority and power that is going to be thrust on his shoulders in a few years' time. Suffering refines character. And I guess the truth that none of us want to admit, but most of us know is true, is that we've grown the most in character in the hardest seasons in our lives. And that is what we start to see with Joseph. Secondly, more importantly, as we widen the focus, we see Joseph's costly obedience will save his family because his refusal to sin puts him in prison. And in prison, he'll meet the butler of Pharaoh. And the butler of Pharaoh will overhear that Pharaoh has had a dream that no one can interpret. And the butler will remember that Joseph could interpret dreams. And Joseph will be brought before Pharaoh. And Joseph will tell Pharaoh that the dream is God's message, that there's going to be years of abundance and then an awesome famine. 
And Joseph will be able to plan for the famine and Joseph's family will eat the food that Joseph himself has stockpiled. Joseph's obedience will lead to their salvation. And more marvelously, more amazingly than all, Joseph's obedience will preserve his family, not just so that this family can live, but so that the promised line will be maintained. So that Judah will have children who do not starve to death, so that their children will live. And their children will have children, will have children, will have children, will have children, and one of them will give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will conquer sin and death and hell. Because of Joseph's obedience, another man will be born. One who will resist temptation, not just for a while, but for every second of every minute of every day, of every week of every month, of every one of the 33 years of his life. And he will then pay for our failure to resist temptation through his death on the cross. But Joseph's obedience preserves the line through which that Jesus will be born. Joseph's obedience is remarkable, but only God, only a faithful God, only an awesome, majestic, created God could somehow use that small act of obedience and make it part of the salvation of the universe. But this bit's really important. What doesn't happen here? What doesn't happen is that God does not send an angel to Joseph before Mrs. Potiphar arrives and say, look, Joseph, I know you're moping around and you think I've forgotten you, but here's the deal. Resist the temptation that's about to come. You're going to be falsely accused, thrown into prison. Don't worry. Uh, After a couple of years in prison, you'll meet some royal officials. They'll forget about you, even though you help them get out of prison. But eventually, 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 you will find yourself before Potiphar, king of Egypt, and he will make you prime minister and you'll get to save your family. And here's the kicker. My salvation of the whole universe will partly be down to your preservation of your family line. So do you reckon you can withhold against this temptation? It doesn't work like that. Joseph knows what God is like because Joseph has heard the stories of Genesis 1 to 36. He knows his family's history. He knows what the family is there for and he knows what God is like. And so he trusts God even though he is in the dark as to what might happen. And what God might be doing. And that is how it goes with you and me. God is not going to appear to you. Almost definitely not going to appear to you tonight and say, tomorrow your boss is going to ask you to do something shady. I want you to resist. The boss is going to be very, very angry. And he's slowly going to sideline you. In a year's time, when there are a round of redundancies, your name will go into the pool because of this and you'll be made redundant. You'll struggle to find another job, and you're going to lose the house that you've just paid a deposit on because of that. But your friends are going to see the way that you keep trusting in God through all the chaos and the pain and the difficulty. And uh, one of them is going to put their trust in Jesus as a result of that. And then they will share the gospel with their friend, and their friend will eventually get married, and uh, they're, they're going to adopt a small child who is going to grow up and will be an evangelist who will turn tens of thousands of godless Brits back to Christ. So careful what you do tomorrow. <laughs> it, yeah, it doesn't work like that. We don't get the narrator's commentary as we go out into the world. 
Tomorrow, we go out blind. We don't know the end of the story. But what we do know is the God who has already written the story. And we do know that that God is faithful. And we do know that that God uses our obedience to bring blessing to others. And we do know that he uses even our sufferings to bring praise to his glorious name and blessing to us and those around us. So keep on serving him. Don't wait until you can see what he might be doing. Trust him. Trust the God of Joseph to be at work even in your life. He is faithful. He will not abandon you. He is with us in slavery, in prison, in temptation. He is with us wherever we are. That is not in doubt. The question is, will I respond to his faithfulness with obedience? Or will I only serve this God when I can see how it works out for me? Let me urge you, it won't be easy to obey God tomorrow. It may cost you hugely in the short term. You may see no resolution for the things you pay for for following God. You may see no resolution in this life, but let me promise you, the God who took Joseph from forgotten prisoner to prime minister of Egypt is the God who one day will exalt all those who follow him, all those who trust him, all those who obey him. And behind the scenes, you can trust that this God is weaving our small obedience into the most wonderful tapestry as he involves us in his plan of salvation and restoration and redemption of this world. Be faithful to God because God is faithful to his people. Let's pray. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our Father God, we thank you that this is not a story to tell us, be faithful, be like Joseph, resist temptation. But this is a story that tells us it is worth obeying you because you are faithful. You never forget your people and you never fail to deliver on your promises. And so, dear Father, I pray that we would love you and be amazed at your, at your character and your power. And I pray that we would be deepened in our conviction that it is worth obeying you as we face our own temptations. I pray that we would never lose our confidence that you, our God, are with us and that you, our God, are faithful to us. Amen.